So after Christmas, Suzanne and Charlotte and I went on a trip. Uh, we decided that we needed to get away. You ever feel like you just need to get away, right? So we just needed to get away. Felt like we had it all planned. We were going we to go to East Tennessee and to Chattanooga. Anybody, anybody been to Chattanooga? Right? Isn't that a great place, right? Great, beautiful. So love Chattanooga. Grew up going there. Suzanne and her family always grew up going there. And so just good, good memories. And so we're like, we're about to walk into awesomeness, okay? Now, I don't know about you, but I, I love to plan, like, for this kind of epic, perfectly curated um, experience. That's always kind of, whether it's, whether it's something, it's a restaurant I'm going to go to, um, uh, you know, food, drink, um, even as a Sunday afternoon, it could be watching football. It doesn't matter. Like, I just, I love trying to create this perfect experience. It's going to be this little ecosystem that's just going to work out perfectly for me and give me all the things that I desire, and I will be satisfied. I will be satisfied, all right? Can anybody relate to that kind of mindset? All right, so that's me. And so that's what I was planning for this. Like, good experiences in the past, good memories. We're going to go there. We'll be high-fiving the whole time. Like, Charlotte's just going to be amazing and really obedient. And anybody want to guess what happened? Not that. Like, not, not, none of that. Like, we, 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 forgot, we left Charlotte at home and brought, like, Demon Child. Like, we, we didn't get Charlotte. We got somebody else. Like, we, we thought we were going to leave behind all the sickness in life, and it just followed us and escalated there. And then we thought, okay, well, like, surely we'll be able to get out and do things. It was, like, 10 degrees, and we couldn't get outside. So we have this child who is losing her freaking mind, all right? And, and then two parents are just like, we give up. Like, we're, we're done. We can't do it anymore. You know, like maybe we'll leave her here. We don't really know, but we'll, we'll figure it out. Um, and it was just, it was just not okay. Like nothing about the time was okay. Um, and I just, I, you know, we would just look at each other like, this is not working out. And, um, and but there was one thing that worked out. I, I started listening again to you 2 now, I got to tell you something. It's the band U2. Anybody, I get it. A lot of you don't even know who that is. It's a bunch of 60-year-olds that are just, like, doing things they shouldn't be doing anymore. So, like, I get it. But, like, U2 is this band for anybody who's 25 or younger. They've been around for a long time, and they used to be really cool. Um, and so, for me, my childhood was basically, like, like ALF, uh, G.I. Joe, uh, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and U2. Like, that was kind of shaped my, my childhood. And so I'm, I'm always trying to give those four things in life a chance. I even tried to get Alpha a chance last year. It did not work out. But, like, I'm always trying to give my past a chance again. And so I remember, like, thinking, okay, I'm just going to, like, pop in and pop in. Like, I got a cassette tape. I'm just going to, like, listen. Oh, my God. I'm just going to listen to you, too. This is getting way too long. I'm just going to listen to you, too, and, and I'm just going to hate it because here's the thing. I've made friends with all these musicians over the last 20 years, and anytime I'd be like, oh, you need to listen to this band, and they're like, you're an idiot for listening to them. Like, they're horrible. They can't play. They're horrible musicians, Robin, all right? And you're a horrible person. That's what, they wouldn't say that, but that's what I felt listening to you two around anyone else. And so I've kind of kept it to myself, um, but then I started listening to it, and I thought, well, this is satisfying. Like, I'm shocked. It's been about 10 years, but I'm actually satisfied for the first time. Um, and I don't know about you, but sometimes the things I thought that would satisfy me don't. But then in the midst of the things that don't satisfy me, I'll find something that seemingly satisfies me. And I'll just kind of go with that. That's just kind of how life seems to work. 
Like there's all these things we think they're going to satisfy us. We plan big for it. We put all of our curation into like full force. And when it happens, we're really let down. But then if we keep an open mind, we find that sometimes there's just a silver lining. There's something that's happening throughout that we go, that's not as bad as I thought. Now this morning, we are going to look at a passage here that we'll start for the next six weeks, us diving into something called the I am statements. And the reason why we're looking at these I am statements um, is because it's epiphany, as Drew said. And the definition of epiphany is to manifest the divine. That's what epiphany means, to manifest the divine. Or to be even more clear, to make God clearly seen. That's it. Like, that's what this season on the church calendar is about, that we want to look clearly at God. And what Scripture tells us is that if we look at Jesus long enough, we get a really good picture of who God is, because Jesus, as Hebrews says, is the exact representation. He, he is God. And I think that this is really important. It's also really sensitive, because if you're like me, God hasn't always been the most satisfying I know that's not what you're supposed to hear on a Sunday morning. I probably, like, what you're not going to, what did your pastor say this morning? God's not satisfying. Um, Sometimes that's the case. Like, I, I found myself years and years not wanting to say that out loud. And when I finally said it out loud, like, it was like a bomb coming out, you know? Like, it was just really, really big. Because for years and years, I convinced myself that this God that was given to me was going to be super satisfying and come through in the clutch. And then I kept getting in these pinches and realizing, like, I feel really lonely. Like, I don't think He's around. I was seeing things like not work out in life, feeling like whatever I put my hands to were blowing up. I was getting myself caught up in all kinds of things in life that I thought could somehow satisfy, numb me out, get me away from whatever was happening. And, and I kept thinking, well, God will come through, and it just wasn't happening. And then I kept convincing myself it would, and before you knew it, I was just a super religious person with no kind of relationship. I think that's just kind of how it is. And if you haven't experienced that yet, you're probably in it, you just don't want to accept it. Like the the whole thing about God is going to come through, it's all going to work out, let's be honest, it doesn't always work out that way. And until we really can see that and accept that, we really won't be willing to engage with fresh eyes maybe who Jesus really is. And so here's what I'm asking you to do for the next six weeks. I'm asking you to be really, really honest if you aren't really, really satisfied with God. And just say that out loud. You know, don't say it out loud right now, but like say it out loud to yourself. Write about it. Talk about it. Because this is only going to work. You're only going to find something out of us going through these I am statements if you're going to be honest with yourself that you're just not that satisfied because what Jesus is going to do is going to offer us something. We have, to be really, we have to really be open to it, willing to receive it. You know, each of these Gospels in the New Testament, I mentioned this at Christmas Eve service, they have a different angle, a different bend to it, different purpose. Like if you, like the first Gospel we have, uh, it's not in this chronologically, right, like when we read our Bibles, but actually the first Gospel written was the Gospel of Mark. And if you read Mark, it's, it starts in the middle of a story and it ends in the middle of a story. It just starts abruptly and ends abruptly. It's a really kind of rough book. It's like somebody was rushing to get a bunch of information down and just get it out because that's what Mark was trying to do. Within 
the first 20 years after Jesus uh, in his ministry and then him resurrecting in his ascension, like the oral tradition eventually wasn't enough. They had to start writing this down so they could get it out faster. And so Mark, taken from Peter, starts writing down all these things that, that about Jesus and a quick sketch of this biography of who Jesus was. And then you have another writer like Matthew who was Jewish, and he very intentionally wants to write a Jewish letter to Jewish people because Jesus was Jewish, and he wants them to understand him in context. And so, Matthew really can only be understood if you're looking at it through a very Jewish lens, how it's being fleshed out. And then you have Luke, who Luke was a an Hellenist Jew. That means he didn't, he wasn't in uh, Palestine, Israel. He was outside of there in the in the Greco-Roman world, but he was also Jewish. Um, he's writing to this person named Theopolis who um, doesn't seem to be a Christian, and Luke is writing more apologetically. Like, he's wanting Theopolis to have a really clear understanding of who Jesus is. So, he's writing more um, apologetically. But then, you have like this break from all these gospels that were written within about a 20-year frame, 20 years after Jesus. So, around, from around 50 to 70, you have like all these gospels written, but then you have this break until the very end of the first century where this gospel of John appears. And what we know about John is it's written from the apostle John. He seems to be the last disciple who kind of lived, and he lived far into this succession of emperors in this Roman world. And by the time that John writes this letter, there is tragedy happening all throughout the Roman world to Christians. They're trying to snuff them all out. They believe that Christians are the antithesis to a good Roman life. They're disrupting everything. And so, they're just trying to set it up to where it's illegal to be a Christian. Let's get them out of here. Let's kill them. And so, John's writing a very intentional letter. You see, the first three Gospels, Mark and Matthew and Luke, are what we call synoptic Gospels. They're Gospels that kind of play off each other. They're similar stories. And then you read the Gospel of John, you're like, this is weird. Like, what are you trying to do here? It's because he has a certain bend to it. He's actually trying to show the divine revelation more of Jesus, the true emperor of the world in the midst of these false emperors who simply want to bring abuse. And so, within this gospel of John, we find there are these seven statements, these I am statements that Jesus is proclaiming that are, that are really unique because at the time, if you were a listener and Jesus was saying these things, you'd be like, okay, well, that's a different way to say it, but I'm not going to, like, think too much about it. But you, have you ever, you ever had, like, 20-20 hindsight? Like, you go back and you think about what somebody said, and you're like, wait a second, that's what they meant? And it either, like, really ticks you off or it, maybe it really excites you. Maybe it's a movie you saw. Like, it's one of those things where you go back and you watch the movie, and you need to watch it a second time, and you see different layers to it, and your mind just kind of gets open to it time and time again. That's, that's kind of how John is, because he's going back here to Jesus about these statements Jesus is making about who he is and what he's going to provide, these I am statements. And in Greek, the, the phrase I am is ego ami. Ego and me. We'll put it up on the screen here. Actually, the word ego is where we get our word, not like egos, like waffles, but like ego. Ego. And your ego 
I, I know that ego means like you're really, really obsessed with yourself, but in, in its most innocent way, ego actually means that you're just very um, intentionally present and mindful. Like you know who you are. So there actually is such a thing as like a healthy ego to where you kind of just know who you are. You kind of know your place in the world. Um, you know your limitations. But then there's like this inflated ego that you can have, right? Which a lot of us have in life and we have to work through it and have it crushed um, and then rebuilt. And so Jesus is using this phrase, ego and me, which means I exist, but also it means like I am here. I am here. I'm here with you. This is it. Pay attention. Look right here because you're going to miss out if you don't otherwise. Ego and me. I am. I exist. And I am here. Now, if you were a Jewish reader reading back over this, and you were looking at it in the intentional way that John's trying to point out, your, your jaw would drop. Because at the time, if Jewish listeners would have picked up on what Jesus was saying, they would have burned him. They, they would have killed him. Because Jesus is taking something that's the most sacred of all sacred within Jewish culture and Jewish understanding. He's actually taking the name Yahweh. Now, Yahweh is the name in Hebrew given for God in the Old Testament. And we see this in Exodus chapter 3. In Exodus 3, we have Moses who's been wandering around the wilderness for 40 years, running away from life. And all of a sudden, he, he runs into this bush that's burning but not being consumed. And then a voice starts speaking to him. He takes off his, you know, it's a regular thing that happens to you every day. You see a bush not being consumed with fire. Somebody speaks to you out of nowhere. You obviously take off your shoes. So that's what, that's what Moses does. And then a voice speaks to him. And so Moses like, this is big. Like, this is big. I don't know what to do with all this. And then eventually Moses says, okay, so when I go back home and then I go to all these people, my Jewish like family, and I say to them, um, a burning bush spoke to me and sent me to come here. What do I tell them? Your name is. And God says, say that I am that I am. I am that I am. And when you break down what that's saying in Hebrew, it's the closest thing you can get to it is these breathing patterns. We would say Yahweh. But for a, an ancient Near Eastern Jewish person, this was such a sacred word, they would never say the name Yahweh out loud. But what they did believe is that if you say it, like just, everybody say Yahweh. Yahweh. Okay, now if you were to say it, watch me, if you do it, you'd be like, Yahweh. Yahweh. So it's like, Yahweh. I know this is so weird right now. You're like, well, this is such a strange sermon, okay? Yahweh. All right, that's the last time I do it because I'm freaking myself out. All right, here's the idea. Here's my point. It was breathing patterns. They believed the name Yahweh was breath. That his name was so sacred you only could breathe it. It's like saying it, out, saying it, bringing it in, Yah, breathing it out, way. And if you did that enough times, you might even hear it. That's what they believed. That was the breathing sound that was made. 
And that was what God was saying. I am the most present thing you've ever imagined, so much so I'm the thing you don't even think about that you're doing every day, and that is breathing. That's who I am. He didn't show up and say, okay, I'm this God you're going to make a shrine of and put up at this temple. Like God shows up and says, I'm breath. That's what I am. Like I, I am air. Like I am so here, you didn't even know I, you were breathing me in. This is who I am. And this was so sacred to them. And they're always wondering, like, this, this breath pattern we have, breathing in, breathing out, breathing in, breathing out, this God that's with us, this God that's so present. I wonder what he's like, like, I wonder what he's like when we meet him. And then Jesus shows up, has the audacity to use this statement, I am. And so this is where we start. Jesus shows up and says, I am the breath you breathe in, and I am the breath you breathe out. I am the most present, intentional, here when you never even understood it or expected it, God, that you'll ever meet. That's who I am. And friends, I just think that's something just for pause for a second and take in. Because what an ancient Eastern person thought what Jesus believed is that whether you realize it or not, you're breathing it in and breathing it out right now. God is that near. C.S. Lewis, he would say that the only thing that separates me and God is the skin that I have on my body. There is something by those who really wrap their minds around God. What they understood was is at the end of the day, you don't give God a bunch of words and a bunch of images, you only can just kind of give him like a bunch of room, maybe even breath, and realize this is bigger than you ever could really wrap your mind around. And when Jesus makes himself this revealed, this understood, he's got a few things to communicate to us. He goes, I bring you stuff. There's things I want you to have. There's guarantees that if you'll listen to me, you can now get this in your life. And the first thing he starts with is this phrase that I am the bread of life. And I just want to give us four observations that I think are important, pertinent to this. Just four observations. So first, let's just kind of look at the context, though. Look at verse 12 and verse 15. It says, when they had eaten their fill, and then verse 15 perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. God is ministering to not the upperly mobile. He's not ministering, like Jesus is not sitting down with those who are affluent and wealthy and have it together. We already discussed this for six months. He spent all of his time preaching messages to the downtrodden, those who were the sat on, spat on, and ratted on, those who were like not getting it together in life by the world's standards. And so these people are like, we found a hero, we found a champion, we, have, we found someone that not only speaks our language but is with us. And they're really powerful. Like Jesus is doing all these miracles. And people are impressed. And they're going, oh my gosh, look at that. People who are blind are seeing. People who couldn't walk, who were lame can now walk. People who are dead are coming back to life. So there's this whole following that Jesus has, like an entourage. Some scholars estimate that he could have had a following regularly of a thousand people. Just think about this. If you had a thousand people following you wherever you went, it's like Forrest Gump, right? Like you're just running from coast to coast. You look around and like people are just running with you. 
okay? Like, that's Jesus. Like, he's just going places and people say, I want to go with that person. And then we had this moment where they're all really hungry, and Jesus finds this kind of mountainside, this hillside, and he goes, well, we got to feed them. We can't just send them away right now. And he goes, what do we got to work with? And this kid had five loaves of bread and then two fish. And so Jesus is like, well, we'll just work with that. And, and the numbers that says 5,000, but a lot of scholars believe that was just counting the men. There's a good chance the numbers could have been over 10 to 15,000 people who were there just with Jesus wanting to hear from him. 10 to 15,000 people. And then Jesus starts just like, well, just take a piece, you know, get you some, pass it down. Get you some, pass it down. And before you knew it, everybody had eaten their fill, it said, verse 12. When they had eaten their fill, they start going, wait a second, this is big. How, how, how did he do this? He must be, there's something messianic about him. He's the true prophet we've been waiting for. And Jesus perceiving that because of power, they were going to try to do something about it because they want change to happen immediately. They had a taste of satisfaction now, and now they're going to try to control it all. He's like, no. So he gets away. And we find that Jesus then goes away, even from his disciples, and gets time with himself and eventually, he and his disciples go across. He, he ends up walking, you know, he, like he does. He walks on water, like he does. He walks on water, and then all of a sudden, when he, get, when he gets in the boat, the boat, like, immediately appears on the other side of the lake, like it happens, right? These are all normal things, right? And so, Jesus does that. But then, he has, his disciples are on the other side of the lake, and all these people are going, we had a taste of satisfaction, and we want more. So, they go after him, and they find him. And when they find him… They're saying to him, where did you go? What they're really saying to him is, we want more. We got a taste of something, we want more. And don't you disappoint us. Give us what we want. And then we find in verse 26, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. He's saying, you didn't come to me simply because I was doing powerful things. You think you want me in this, in this situation. You think you just want to anoint me king. That's what you think you want because something powerful happened. But let me tell you the reason why you're really here right now. It's not because that something powerful happened. It's because something personal happened. Like, I didn't just do something powerful for you. I did something personal for you. That's why you want to get near me right now. That's the first thing, observation I would say for us. You aren't just looking for a powerful God, you're actually looking for a personal God. So many times our prayers to God, right, are things like, God, if you'll just change this, just change my circumstance, just make this work out for me in life, just move the mountains. Like, this is the year, God, I meet my spouse. It's going to happen. It better happen, right? Move the mountains. This is the year I'm finally appreciated in my job, and I get that position. This is the year I finally get whatever it may be. I don't know what your thing is. It's that thing that you keep demanding that it would just happen from a powerful God. And then when it doesn't, you find yourself cynical towards this God. Hopeless. But the, the thing you're actually looking for isn't a God who's powerful only. You're actually looking for a God that's personal. You're looking for a God that's willing to come meet your needs. 
You're not just looking for a God that's going to like end world, like, okay, here's something. So many times we're like, I just, I just want there to be like all the hunger in the world to be relieved and everybody to have food and everybody to be taken care of, which is a wonderful, beautiful prayer. But if you can't even pray for your own needs to be satisfied, and that's the only thing you can pray, then you kind of just have a God that you want just to be powerful, but you don't really have a God that could be personal. I think a lot of us end up with this kind of God. We pray for God to just move the mountains of the world, just solve the political problems we have, but, but you've gotten so cynical with Him, you've like quit praying for the personal things. Have you quit praying for personal things because God never answered them? Are you carrying that with you into 2018? So that's the first thing I think God is trying to, I mean, that Jesus is trying to say to us. Listen, yes, I'll do powerful things, but that thing you quit praying for, that thing you quit asking for, knocking for, seeking for, you could like come to me with that. Maybe I can satisfy you with it. So Jesus is saying, you don't just want a powerful God, but you also want a personal God. You see, the powerful God, a powerful God will only intrigue you. You need a God who can meet you, not just intrigue you. I am the bread of life. We go on to read in verse 27. Jesus goes on to say, so they're saying to Jesus like, so how do we get this then? Like, you're offering, you're offering us something here, and you're telling us to not just, to not just seek after power in life, but to, to, to let this be a personal experience. How do we get it? And Jesus goes on to say, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on Him, God the Father has set His seal." See, so many times we think that what we really need is for God to answer this specific prayer. If He answers a specific prayer, then I'll be satisfied. Let's say your prayer this year was to get a new whatever it may be, thingamajig for Christmas, all right? And you got your thingamajig for Christmas, and you open it up, and you love it and play with it, and then about a week later, what happens with your thingamajig? You just don't care that much anymore. Like once you've showed it off and you've taken pictures of your thingamajig and people have commented and said, boy, I sure love that. That looks amazing. And you're like, that's about all that this can really do then, right? And everybody's like, yeah, that's it. Like it's just a thing. And so then you're like, well, I guess I need another one. And then you keep going for it and going for it and going for it and trying to pile up more and more and more stuff. And eventually you realize like this is just a futile game. Like, yeah, keep doing it if you want. But there's never going to be enough things that you could pile up and take pictures of and curate on Instagram for people to like, like it's just not going to be enough. You can't get enough thumbs up and likes in life to be okay, all right? And then you start going like, man, this is like a futile game. And Jesus is saying, all this stuff, like that person you just married, congratulations. And now the shine's going to wear off. It's just kind of how it works. Like, you realize that this person can't give you all that you want and need in life. And then you have to start realizing, well, so maybe they weren't designed for that. 
Like maybe there are hungers and longings and desires in me that this world can never be filled. And friends, I think that's what tells us there's a God. I think the thing that tells us there's a God is no matter how many things you accumulate in life, you realize those things are never enough. And so Jesus then is telling his disciples, God wants to meet your momentary, but also your greatest longings. Like, he wants to meet your momentary and your greatest longings. See, notice here what he says. He goes, but the food that endures to eternal life, that's what you want. Now, this word eternal life within a a Jewish culture was a really big deal. It doesn't mean what it means today for us. So many times we say eternal life, what's happened within a, a Western lens, eternal life means we just go to Beulah land. Beulah land means heaven for anyone that's under 30, all right? So you just go to the buys and buys, and you get to heaven, and it's just, that's it. You just go to heaven. You got a robe, you sing a bunch of songs all day long, that's it. And then if you're really honest with yourself, you're going, that doesn't sound that great. So we go like, that's what eternal life is. And I've even said to myself before, like, if that's eternal life, I think I'm okay with just whatever I got here. But eternal life for a Jewish person didn't mean getting to heaven. Matter of fact, they didn't even think in those ways. They weren't even thinking about heaven. They were thinking about getting as much life, cramming as much life into their life as possible. That's what eternal life meant. It didn't mean you found the secret elixir that's going to make you live forever. It means that you get to have life here and now. And Jesus is saying, don't seek for the stuff that's going to be temporary and expire. Seek for the thing that will never run dry. And now they're going, yes, what is that? That's the thing we want. We want the thing that never runs dry. We want the thing that always satisfies. No matter how many thingamajigs or whatever it's going to be we get in life, we want the thing that truly satisfies, the thing that truly fills us up. And so then they say to him naturally, what do we got to do to get it? So look at verse 28. They say to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Meaning, what do we got to do to get there to get this thing? And then Jesus says to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. Our natural reaction every time God almost teases us with something in the Bible is, okay, so how do I get that? Like, I had to save a bunch of money to get this thing. I had to work a couple of jobs, a couple of side hustles, but I figured it out. I got it. So, how do I get this thing? And then Jesus just flips it on his head. He goes, you, you, you can't get it. What? I can't get it? What do you mean? Like, so Jesus, let's just play this out. Jesus is saying, the thing that you truly want is eternal life. And everybody goes, great, let's go get it. And he goes, yeah, but you can't get it. So why are we listening to you? Like you're, in, you're, you're an insane person. And he says, no, you don't understand. It can't be gotten, it can only be given. That's the third thing Jesus is saying. What you're looking for can't be gotten. I know that's not great English. But you can't get it it can only be given. Now, just think about that for a second. The thing you've been looking for your whole life in 2018, you can't get it. Happy New Year. 
I hope it's a great year for you. It's just, you just can't get it. It's just not going to happen. Just, you just can't get it. You can't save enough for it. You can't beg enough for it. It just can't get it. And yet, it only can be given. So this then creates a whole conundrum for us. Like, so how does this work? Like, what do we do then? And Jesus is saying, it's only given when you combine to the fact that I am everything that you truly need here and now. And friends, this is when it starts like grinding against us. Because it's one of those things um, that honestly you have to be given the eyes to see. Here's, here's what I'm trying to say bluntly. You'll never be able to be given the thing that you need until you realize that you'll never be able to get the thing you need. Until you give up trying to get it, you'll never find it. I don't know what that is in life for you. I'm not going to define it. That thing that you say, if I just have this, I'll be okay, then like you're, you're, you're not going to find it. And you will be miserable. And you have then said, okay, well, wait a second, I can make this happen. Okay, well, just call yourself God and just get on with it then. Because that's what it comes down to. Like, you can't get from God what He has to give until you quit being God. But here's the thing, when you quit being God, that's when the shame comes in. The humiliation, the hurt, the pain, the loneliness, all those kind of things. It's giving in to the fact that you're saying this is how life is. There's a term in the recovery world that they say time and again, learning to live on life's terms. Like the problem for any person who deals with addiction in life is that they kept trying to make life work out for them on their terms. But they never could realize something. That's not how life works. It only works until you learn to live life on life's terms. But when you finally learn to live life on life's terms and not on your terms, all of a sudden you start finding things in life that are given to you that you never could have got. And all of a sudden you start finding little miracles along the way of joy in the midst of sadness, of, of somehow joy in the midst of pain, of somehow intimacy in your loneliest moments, of somehow healing in the most hurtful parts of your life. The things you were demanding to get out of life, you couldn't get until you quit demanding it. What a paradox from Jesus. He just blows the mind. And he's like, I'm here to give it to you, but you got to quit demanding it. You got to quit trying to manufacture it. And then we read on. In verse 33, it says, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. You see, they still didn't get it. They said to him, okay, if you're this person, give us signs. Now, what they were referring back to and they start talking about it is this guy, Moses, where this all started, right? Moses gets this like weird breathing name of a God, starts talking to people about this weird, this weird God that you only can breathe in and out. So they start following this God, you only can breathe in and out through the desert, and they're like, what do we do with this kind of God? And they're like, we're hungry. And so they're like, well, God, that we breathe in and out, can you feed us? And all of a sudden, like, like we don't know exactly, but somehow they're waking up to bread out of the sky. All right? Like, there's this stuff coming down, like little bitty flakes, I don't know what it is, we don't know, but somehow it formed together, and then they can, like, get bread, and, like, they're happy. Okay? So... This is what they said to sign, like, okay, Jesus, if you are who you say that you are, be like Moses, give us a sign. 
And Jesus is saying, you don't get it. Like, you're still trying to manufacture it. You're trying to demand from me how to be satisfied in life. It's just not going to work that way for you. You have to quit the demands. You have to somehow decide to surrender to this. And so Jesus says in verse 33, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Until you quit looking for the thing you're expecting, you'll never get the thing you're always hoping for. Until you quit looking for the thing that you're expecting, you'll never get the thing you've always been hoping for. Like, it's the things we keep expecting. I expect it's like, for example, if you're looking for someone to marry, and you have a list of how that person is supposed to look and act, and like their personality, and it's what they are on the Enneagram, first off, I'm really sorry for you, okay? It's just not, it's not gonna, it's not gonna happen, all right? You don't have to like throw the list away, but I'd burn it at least. So, so the thing is, like, it's not gonna happen, But the thing you keep demanding, I keep expecting that to happen. Well, okay, so that's why, like, you've missed out. Good chance you've missed out on a few people. Because it's not what you're expecting until you put the expectations over here. You'll never get the the thing you're hoping for. Jesus is like, put those expectations away. Just let me be here with you. And then he says, in verse 34, they say, well, they say to him, sir, give us this bread always. They finally surrender. Okay, fine. Give us this bread always. And here's what Jesus says. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This whole passage is working up to simply us giving in to saying to Jesus, okay, okay, I surrender. I give up. I've been demanding you to be this kind of God, but I give up. I've been demanding for you to give me these kind of powerful signs in life, but I give up. Can you relate to that? Is the burnout and the cynicism you have coming into 2018 with God does it revolve around all the demands you've made of him and the demands he hasn't met? Because you were demanding these all powerful things from him, and the whole time he was trying to meet you in more personal ways. Like, yeah, it's a really big deal for God to answer these big prayers in your life, but if he's a God that you breathe in and breathe out, there's probably a good chance you've missed him in your breathing in and breathing out. If you keep demanding for God to be near you in X, Y, and Z ways, there's probably a really good chance if He's the God you breathe in and breathe out that He's been near and closer to you this whole time. Like, where have you missed Him? I had a pastor years ago say to me, learn to create a holy suspicion that God is near. And he would talk about like doing weird things like, just, just look for Him just look for him behind trees. Behind trees? What the? Yeah, just look for him. Like, just look for him with that really annoying person. Just, just look for him in that really boring place. Just maybe let him show up. So, I started practicing it, and it was weird. It's weird going, God, are you behind that tree looking at me right now? Like, it's kind of stalkerish to do it, so maybe don't, okay, don't do it that way. But, like, God, are you near right now? Are you trying to, like, are you trying to speak to me? And the only kind of person that can do that is a person who can be reflective of life in the midst of life. If you're constantly going through life mindlessly, 
one experience to the next experience, one thingamajig to the next thingamajig. You just can't take in the God that you breathe in and breathe out. But if you let Him just kind of show up in the midst of what's ever happening, there's this quote from Pope John Paul II. I love it. It's in your bulletins. It says, it is Jesus that you seek when you dream of happiness. He is waiting for you when nothing else you find satisfies you. He is the beauty to which you are so attracted. It is He who provoked you with that thirst for fullness that will not let you settle for compromise. It is He who urges you to shed the mask of a false life. It is He who reads in your heart your most genuine choices, the choices that others try to stifle. It is Jesus who stirs in you the desire to do something great with your lives the will to follow on ideal, the refusal to allow yourselves to be bound down by mediocrity, the courage to commit yourselves humbly and patiently to improving yourselves in society, making the world more human and more fraternal. Oh, how beautiful. Don't you want that? Like, don't you want that? And the only way you get it is by Stopping demanding it, because you can't get it. It only can be given. And this is the last thing I think Jesus says to us then. Neediness is the currency to find and receive it. Here's how you get it, folks. Here's how it's given to you. You just get really needy. You just start talking about how needy you are for a God to show up, and you start owning the fact that you haven't always had a God that's showing up for you. You start talking about how lonely you are for a God to come meet you where you are. You quit trying to use Bible verses as magical incantations, I mean incantations, like trying to say like, I'm going to provoke God to appear right now. The Bible's not magic. God's not magic. You breathe them in, you breathe them out. And you start learning that only in your neediness can you experience Him in this life. I've, um, I was wrestling with this, and I'm not, there's not a lot of detail to go into, but there's been a lot happening in our city over the last 48 hours, especially when it comes to, to churches and, and leadership, and, and I know for anyone who's been here longer than a minute, that kind of stuff can, can strike some PTSD. You can start thinking like, gosh, will the hypocrisy in church ever end? Like you have to, you have to, you, have, you better, you have to if you're a human. You'd be sitting there right now and listening to someone like me and go, can I trust a person like that? You start seeing all the hashtags of the Me Too and the Church Too. Ladies, the way that you've been um, abused, whether it was physically, emotionally, spiritually, just seeing a bunch of boys' clubs and, and seeing people try to use God's Word in a way that's abusive. And I'll be honest, I was just, I, there's, there's this other hashtag out there, like I'm not on social media and it's not good for me, and, 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 and now and I'm just reminded why, because when I do, I just go into these spirals. Like I'm just like, oh my God, like I just want to quit life. I was like, I just need to quit life. I need to quit being a pastor. I need to quit doing everything. Nothing's going to work out. Like, that's where I go. Like, these little hopeless places. I know that's what you want to hear from your pastor on a Sunday morning. 
and I start seeing the hashtags of empty the pews, and I'm like, well, okay, let's just, I'm like, I'm like, I guess we need to empty the pews, I guess we need to do that. And I just, I think, though, about all of that, and I go, my God, the people that are hurting, the people that have been hurt and abused by the church. And I just want you to know something. If you're that person here this morning, if it's hashtag empty the pews and you're only here forcing yourself out of some toxic shame because you need to be buying into something more, I want you to know I'm really sorry. That's a whole lot to carry with you inside. If you're someone who has really been hurt and abused by the church, every time something goes on, some kind of crap, and it shoots off some PTSD in you, I'm sorry. I wish I could fix it. I can't. But I just want to tell you something. I'm never going to satisfy you. This church is never going to satisfy you. There's nobody who ever could stand up here. There's nobody you ever meet that ever is going to satisfy you. Only Jesus can. And that's just really out of my heart for you, whoever that is in here. I don't know. Maybe nobody. You all may be here and be like, what are you talking about, Robin? I don't think that's it. I think I know Christ enough by now. This is a pretty savvy bunch. And you're not here for anybody just to feed you a bunch of BS. You're actually here because you just want to, like, interact with Jesus. That's it. And you're just like, some of you are saying, this is my last shot at church. Thank you that you're still here. And I want you to know something. Jesus is saying to you this morning, put the expectations aside, the demands, the powerful things that you think I'm supposed to do. If you'll put it aside, if you'll quit trying to get it, like, you'll find it. I'll give it to you. Like, I'll, I'll, I'll give you the thing that you're looking for, but you're going to have to get out of the way. And you're going to have to just kind of keep talking about those things that hurt you so much and that abuse you so much. But friends, if you do, you're going to get it. The bread of life. I am the bread of life. And any who comes after me for this bread will be eternally satisfied. Let's pray. So, Father, I ask now that as we go into communion, that you would come and meet us as the bread of life. That Jesus and his body and his blood would be enough for us. We love you so much. Amen.